Hey guys, just a reminder, my online course is Birth Story Academy and you can enroll in it at birthstory.com. It's taught by me. You can be in your jammies. It's online. It's pre-recorded and it has a ton of freebies and downloads. It's everything that you need to prepare for your hospital birth. So hope to see you in Birth Story Academy. Today's episode is with Mei Yoshikawa. She is from Japan and she is a yogi, an ambassador for Adidas. She is an author. She's a mother. She's a widow. She is light. She is wonderful. And this episode, quite literally, was one of the most healing episodes that I've recorded in the history of the Birth Story podcast because we connected on so many levels. And let me tell you what was going on right before we hit record. It was a very exhausting day with my kids. It was a very exhausting day with work. I was running late. I was stuck in traffic. My body was full of stress. I wanted to cancel on her. Everything in me wanted to cancel this interview and just put my pajamas on and go to bed. And a little voice inside of me said, Heidi, by choosing to have this interview with May, you are choosing yourself. I love to interview people. I love to connect with people. I know that interviewing people on the podcast brings me to life. And so I knew if I could just log on to the computer that I was going to have the best evening. But I had no idea how great of an evening I was going to have. We recorded for an hour and a half. And I think that you're just going to devour this entire episode without any interest for time. Because this episode is about living in the moment, preparing in the moment. It's about trauma. It's about grief. It's about love. It's about loss. It's about missed expectations. It's about putting in the hard work. It's also about redemptive birthing. So please share this episode. Thank you for listening. It's really, really special. And I'm so glad that I chose myself and I poured into myself by saying yes to this conversation with May. What does a contraction feel like? How do I know if I'm in labor? And what does the day of labor look like? Wait, is this normal? Hey, I'm Heidi. My best friends call me Hydes. I'm a certified birth doula, host of this podcast, and author of Birth Story, an interactive pregnancy guidebook. I have supported hundreds of women through their labor and deliveries, and I believe every one of them and you deserves a microphone and a stage. So here we are. Listen each week to get answers to these tough questions. Birth Story, where we talk about pregnancy, labor, deliveries, where we tell our stories and share our feelings. And of course, chat about our favorite baby products and motherhood. And because I'm passionate about birth outcomes, you will hear from some of the top experts in labor and delivery. Whether you are pregnant, trying desperately to get pregnant, or you just love a good birth story, I hope you will stick around and be part of this birth story family.
Hi, May. Welcome to the Birth Story Podcast. Hi, thanks for having me. So May is in Japan and I am in the United States. And so it's 6 p.m. And so you've already had tonight, which is so cool to me because it's tomorrow morning for you already. And I love that concept of just like standing on opposite sides of an earth that's turning in rotation. Feels cool. Speaking from your future, it's 8 a.m. here. And I just sent my first son out to school. He goes on, takes a train on his own. And then the little one is six years old and he still goes to daycare here. So I just dropped him off and rushed home and here we are. Okay. How old is your oldest? 14. 14. Okay. Well, that makes more sense to me. I was like, what age do you get on a train by yourself and go to school? It's so shocking for my friends in the United States because kids start at six years old in first grade. Like I started when I was as a six-year-old to take the train on my own. It's actually very safe um, and people do it all the time. See, we're going to get into a lot of like very neat cultural differences and I'm so excited to learn more about where you live and birthing where you live and culture, just things like taking a train in first grade. So May, we're going to get into a little bit of your birth stories. But before that, um, there's a there's a big reason that we're here together today. And that's because you reached out to me. And I want you to start there. Share with me a little bit about who you are, like what city you live in, and what has brought you to start sharing your story. Okay, my name is Mei Yoshikawa. I am based here in Tokyo, Japan. I like to say that I look Japanese, I speak American English, but I found my heart in South India, which is quite the mix. Um, I'm actually a quarter American. My mother is half American and half Japanese. My mother was, I should say. So quite early on in my life, my mom had a very rare neurological disease, which was very difficult for her and for our whole family to handle. And it pushed me to a point where I just, um, it was a very, very difficult time for me. And through this experience, I discovered yoga and meditation because I needed to take care of myself. I got really into it and I started going to South India to learn at the feet of the guru, as they say. And incidentally, a few years down the road, I became the first Japanese woman to be authorized at the founding school of Ashtanga Yoga in South India. And um, here in Japan, I started sharing and teaching the yoga and meditation. One of my strongest affiliations was with Japan's first yoga magazine, um, which featured me as their cover model. I started writing a column for them and they featured me on the cover for 42 consecutive issues. Um, over 10 years, including my pregnancy issue and everything, which was really wild. 42. <laughs> 42. That's, that's like loyalty right there. And also because yoga, I didn't want to portray yoga as just a physical exercise, right? It was a part of life and change. And we wanted to express that through the magazine and through my column as well. Since 2015, I've been a global ambassador for the sports company Adidas, um, where I'm featured in a lot of their advertising campaigns, and we do a lot of work together. So that's kind of the career end of what I do. 
And let's see, so I have two boys. The first one was born when I was 29. But shortly after that, I went through a really difficult divorce. So I was a single mom to him for the first five years of his life. And then I met a lovely man in my mid thirties and we remarried and had this beautiful marriage. We had our second son, which I had a home birth with, which I imagine we would get into. But a few years after that, um, I lost my husband to a sudden traffic accident, which was very shocking and uh, tragic really for all of us. And it plunged me into, well, that I would say about two years of almost complete hermithood just prior to COVID when everybody else also became a hermit, right? How old was your youngest son when your husband passed? He was only five months old. And my older boy was eight years old. Okay. Yeah. And so just five months prior to his passing, as a family, we had gone through one of the most sublime, divine experiences coming together in our bathtub at home giving birth to this baby, um, which I will carry in my heart forever as as a treasure. And uh, so this experience of grief has been hugely transformational for me. And it's been a journey of a metamorphosis of identity, the way that I see it. But it's also led me to scratch out all the extra gunk in my life. Like I don't worry about the little stuff anymore. And I just really got down to what do I live for? What do I want to live for? And um, what kind of a mom are my kids going to watch growing up? I didn't want to pity myself for the grief and for the loss. I wanted to celebrate the love that we had and the love, most importantly, that changed me as a person. It led me to write a book, my first book in English. I have two books published in Japanese, which are more yoga and lifestyle based, but my first book in English is a memoir. And this is super exciting. I recently signed with a New York literary agent like last month. So in the next month or so, we're gonna be pitching this to US publishers. And it's really my time now to, I've, I've been wanting to reach out and connect with the greater audience in English and share my story, which is a lot about grief too, but also it throughout my memoir, I weave through my experience of pregnancy and birth with my experience of grief, because my theory is this, everything I need to know about coping with pain in life, I learned through birthing. Mm-hmm. So my first birthing experience was super painful. And I got to thinking, well, there's got to be a better way to do this, which is why eight years later, when I had the home birth, I actually had an almost all pain-free birth, which I don't think many people know is even possible, right? Mm-hmm. Which is why I was like, okay, I, I wanted to reach out to you, Heidi. And I was like, okay, I want to get the story out there just because I want people to know that it's actually possible. It is possible. It can be 
orgasmic, it can be ecstatic, it can be astounding. There are so many words to describe birth other than pain, and so many words in English, especially the only language that I can articulate this experience in. There's, there aren't, there's just not enough words to put into how wonderful it can be. And it just gets simplified to this word pain. And I think it's because we just don't have language for the transformation of what is possible. Um, May the audience listening to Birth Story podcast that's followed my journey for a long time knows exactly why you are here with me today. And our stories are very similar, um, but very, very different. And when I received your email to be on the podcast, I had just returned from a very intensive, um, powerful yoga retreat in Costa Rica. And, um, And it was a healing retreat. And I was going to heal... And I'm going to say the death also of my spouse. So those that follow my journey know that that's the language that I use. Um, I identify as a widow of sorts and the loss of a spouse. Um, When my spouse attempted suicide in 2018 and survived, um, they then um, realized that they were born into the wrong body and transitioned into um, like let the life of the spouse that I had in the he, him body and transitioned into female. And with that came the loss of my marriage, a tremendous amount of grief for me and my children. And then the practice of yoga and breath work and drawing upon my birth experiences to like rise from that experience. And so I just wanted to sit here with you in this moment. There is a physical person that is still present in this world. And I want to honor the transgender community by not like that is a beautiful thing, but but what happened to my life wasn't quite as beautiful as what happened to their life because I was left behind. Um, and so I was thinking we would just start there with mm-hmm. um, the situation is different, but whether you're in the U.S. or you're in Japan or you're in South India or anywhere in the world, the way that we experience grief and the way that we feel it in our body, um, it, it sees no dividers in time zones and in right. languages. And so I'm really excited to hear your story because it's going to heal me even further today, I know, and other people listening as we are taking a journey with you on um, your births and how you drew upon 
your breath work and your practice of yoga and how that prepared you and how it's going to keep preparing you, right? Like the one thing I know for sure is that there are more things ahead of us that are going to be really hard. And, and these are the tools that we use to, to keep going and to have hope. And that's exactly it. That's exactly it. Yeah. So how old were you when your mother became sick? First symptoms started to show when I was 17 and my mom was 47. I'm the fourth of four siblings in my family. My, my parents married very young at 19 and 20. So my mom had my eldest sister when she was 20. And then she had me when she was 30. Um, yeah, four kids between the age of 20 and 30. She was very, very young. She was only 47 when she started to show symptoms of like amnesia and also a misrecognition of three-dimensional features. So she would be thirsty, reach for a glass of water and completely miss the cup. Um, she eventually wouldn't be able to walk home because she lost track of you know which corner to turn. And then eventually she wouldn't know where the bathroom was in her own house. And, you know, it was very um, atypical and, and a really difficult time for us to keep adjusting to that change for the first couple of years. Yeah. So would you say that that up until 17 years old, your life had been free of trauma? actually no my parents divorced when I was 14 going on 15 so I would say that was my first experience of trauma especially because I was amidst my pubescent years and you know already trying to figure out life and figure out who I was but then I lost track of who can I believe and what can I trust when my foundational kind of familial setting was just going down in the dumps yeah Yeah, so that's Definitely my first trauma. Okay. I'm trying to get a frame of reference here because I am a trauma-informed birth worker. And it's very important to start understanding um, as we work with anyone on their birth stories, even in a retelling, right? What different things play into how we respond to the waves and the surges and the lack of control that we have in the birthing process. So the first time you probably really had profound lack of control was your parents' divorce. And then the next time, it sounds like when your mom became sick. Right. And that was over a long period of time too. Um, Because when it, well, first of all, it took the doctors um, like two years to come up with a diagnosis because her condition was so rare. And then when they did diagnose her, they said, we give her 10 years to live tops, but she outdid that by another seven. So she was sick, but alive for half of my life. Like she passed when I was 34 and she had been ill for 17 years. So I would, I would look back upon that time now and recognize it as a slow, ambiguous grief. But as I was going through it, I had no idea. Now, how did you find yoga? Like, where did this get introduced or who introduced you to even the practice or the concept of yoga? 
Right, because it was in 2000, 2001-ish, which was really, really early in Japan. When I first started looking for yoga studios back in 2001, there were only three studios in all of Tokyo metropolitan area, which is really crazy. I um, well, I got sick. The the my mother's sickness and her condition changing weekly really took a toll on my own health. I got really depressed. I was an insomniac. I got really cold and all over my body, and I would have these like. Um, my nerves endings would tingle and I went to doctors too, but doctors would typically prescribe me antidepressants and sleeping pills. And by then I had a little, I, and I, I want to be respectful of the fact that these are necessary medications and helpful for some, but for me, I had my doubts about it because I had seen the medical world, um, handle something they don't know when they with with my mom's disease and and so I was a little reluctant to just take the pills and kind of glaze over the symptoms I wanted to know the cause and how I could how I can get to the root cause and I didn't feel that taking the medication would help me do that so I started going to acupuncture and trying to do other things um, but I was also in university and so there was that side of things. And then there was like, oh, go and party and forget about it all kind of thing too. I had this duality going on. Um, but it was from that dark tunnel where I finally said, I need some form of help because I'm not sleeping. I'm totally depressed. I don't have a life. And one summer I came across this girl she was an Australian girl. I met her somewhere in Europe and um, she just had really beautiful posture and really beautiful legs. And it was totally random, but I went up to her and I said, what kind of training do you do? Because you must be doing something. And I was so desperate to find something that would work. And she was like, I do Pilates three times a week. And I was like, what? Because I had never heard of Pilates before. This is like 2000. And, you know, and, and there was no such thing as Pilates in Japan. I never heard of it. So I, I said, what's Pilates? And she goes, well, it's similar to yoga. But in Pilates, we use a lot of equipment to train our core. So I came back from Europe that summer. I looked all over to find Pilates, but there was no such thing as Pilates yet in all of Japan. And then I remembered that she said it was similar to yoga, but so then I researched all of these yoga places and found a place that I would try. Wow. I love this story. I was introduced to yoga in the early 2000s also, but by a television show called Sex in the City. And oh, so... yeah. By then, you know, I think it was already quite popular um, in America. Yeah. So, I mean, it was easy to find a place, but I remember being in college and learning about sushi and yoga and like really wanting to be like one of the characters in Sex in the City. And it was like, we're going to go to yoga class and then we're going to go eat sushi. And so it was much more superficial my introduction to yoga than um, 
than your calling into health, right? And so I love this. Now, um, health means a lot of things to a lot of different people, right? Moving our body, nutritious food, um, clearing our mind. So when you say you are seeking health, do you mean like you were just trying to get the tingling to go out of your fingers or like, what did that mean to you? That's such a great question because what it meant to me changed through my experience of yoga. Okay. What happened was I walked in there and when I first walked in there, health to me meant health of the body. I wanted to be able to sleep. I wanted the coldness and the tingles to go away. I wanted to be able to function like a normal person again. But when I started yoga and my teacher, my teacher introduced to me a method where I would use my intention to, to um, focus on moving my body synchronously with my breath. And I noticed that my breath was completely out of whack and I couldn't get a hold of it. I mean, it's one thing to move your arm or your leg up and down, but I couldn't get a hold of inhaling when I wanted to or exhaling when I wanted to. So then I started to use my breath and then I learned that using my breath had so much to do with what I was eating, how I was feeling and how I was thinking, which is what led me into meditation and the whole mindset thing, which really impacted my birth. But within the first, I would say six to 10 months, I learned that health is of mind and body not just the body. So I really got into um, all of the breath work and the meditation. And, and then I, I started to touch upon what I would now call holistic health and wellness. I, didn't, I don't think I knew it then, but I was just going with what I was feeling and what I, what I, my experience. Mm-hmm. And for those of you that do practice yoga, like one of the things with a, a change in mind and body is it's the five layers or the five koshas. And so like learning about the five layers and the five koshas and each layer has a different breath associate breath work associated with it. And each layer has different movements associated with it also. And um, I also remember there were different types of breathing, like, like, a like kind of the, the, the types of breath work that um, ignite the belly, like the fire breathing, the warm, warm breathing. Um, you'll see as you learn different types of breathing, especially when each of you are preparing for your birth journeys, some of these types of breathing or breath work may come easy to you. And other layers where you may have things like trauma to heal, um, there are other parts of the body that may feel more stuck. And um, so there's lots of podcasts you guys can Google on the on breath work and the five koshas or five layers. Um, but as you started to kind of peel back those layers, did you kind of notice changes instantly in your body? Or was it something that like slowly over time, looking back, you were like, I'm sleeping better. Mm. The sleeping part was instant because after the first 15 minutes of my first yoga class, I almost fell asleep. And I was like, what the heck is going on? Because 
the whatever the herbal teas and this and this everything else I was doing wasn't working for the life of me but here I am just trying to move my body and use my breath in a different way and then like that I'm about to fall asleep in the yoga studio so and that was really the reason why I kept going back because I was like this is effective this works and I just kept going back going back Yeah. So the way that I would describe it in my own body is that the traumas that I had in my life, each time I would kind of dissociate. So my mind and my body would become very disconnected. So my body would be operating over here and my mind would be operating over here. And yoga and breath work was a way to kind of um, re-enter my body where I felt like my energetically, my soul could drop back down into my physical body. And then in a class, they could work together, they could help. But, but for a long time, like you said, maybe you were grieving for several years. Um, It's very easy to fall into a place in which we dissociate and we detach from our body and we let our body do this and we let our mind over here do this. And I'm getting to something in labor later. Yeah, no, now that you mentioned, you know, when I look back, I realized that um, I had a tendency to numb myself. And I, I wasn't like huge on whatever substances and alcohol or anything like that. But I had a way of um, disengaging from the life in front of me in order to survive the moment. And now that you mentioned, I'm quite sure that started from my experience of my parents' divorce, because I would be at home, but I wouldn't feel like my home was a place of safety. So I would, I learned to dissociate from all of that, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. It took years to gain awareness around that and try to heal and integrate those pieces of myself, but it sure feels good to begin to really come back to yourself and embody who you are in wholeness. Yeah. And so as we move along in this conversation, we're going to be talking about some of the tools and the teachings that May then utilized in her birthing experience that then um, really led to a transformation for her to be able to be strong um, for her family and herself during her grieving process. And so um, take me to Southern India. Hmm. So I started going to South India in 2004. It was an extension of my having learned from my teacher in Japan for the first two, three years, but he would go to South India to learn from the teacher there. And I wanted to drink from the source of the fountain. I I thought, well, if he's going to India, I got curious about who his teacher is. And I started going there and, uh, Fortunately, I could speak and understand English, and I got really good at speaking and understanding Indian English, too, (laughs) so I could uh, study there, and I kept a house there, actually, for 13 years, just down the street from the yoga school, so that I could, I would spend about three or four months out of the year, and uh, then I would come back to Japan and start teaching, and I would go back and keep furthering my studies there. And so your primary career at this point was as a yoga instructor. As a yoga instructor. And then I had this magazine on the side too, which I was modeling for. With your 42 covers, which is so fantastic. Um, Oh, this is like, 
you're going to make a movie someday. I can just feel it out of this memoir. I was like, ooh, this is very, like, I need to know what happens next type of thing. So walk us through day-to-day life in South India. Like, what? how many times a day did you practice? What types of food were you eating? Um, as you integrated back into your body, how were you feeling? Yes. Gosh. Um so there's, there are so many things. It's like, where do I even begin? But typically the practice at the school is in the early morning hours. So I would usually wake up quietly at about maybe 3 a.m. or 3.15 and have a, an Indian kind of bathing moment. I didn't really have a full functioning shower, but I would pour some hot water into a bucket and pour it over my head and heat up my body and wake it up. I would start chanting these mantras silently in my mind, walk myself for a few minutes down to the school, wait my turn. And when my turn came, I would start my practice, which was usually about 90 minutes to two hours or so. And as I finished my practice, I would come out of the school. I preferred not to speak with anyone because I didn't want to chat or judge how how was your practice today you know I didn't I was just wasn't into any of that small talk and I would get a couple fresh coconuts and rejuvenate and walk myself back home and proceed to another hour of meditation or these puja practices which is a Hindu form of what they would call worship but for me it was really just a preparation for mental focus and meditation um, which meant that on any average day from the moment I would wake for the first maybe five hours of my day, I wasn't talking to anyone. I would only immerse myself in sacred syllables and sacred mantras, only move my body in ways that was designed for energetic harmony. And it was just, it was just uh, almost like a sacred practice for me to come back to myself from whatever years of trauma that I had. Yeah. So the question that I have is that is an immersive experience. Yes. And now you're a mom and you have two children and life gets busy. Do you find it easier to find comfort and peace and sleep and health because you always have those tools now? Like, like, I think the question is for that I want the audience to hear is if people put in the work when they're pregnant, when they're grieving, when they're healing, um, have you seen that transcend, translate um, through the years? Absolutely, yes. And I usually like to recommend people to start before they get pregnant or before they have to grieve or before these traumatic experiences come just to give yourself a foundation of taking care of yourself. What for me that meant was that I used to be in my teens and early 20s somewhat of a perfectionist. And again, it was my mode of surviving through my parents' divorce and my mom's illness to try to control things, to have things in a semi-perfect manner and somehow it would make life more livable for me. And going to India, whew, did that out the window, right? I mean, going to India, it's like, 
You walk down the street, there's a clock on the clock tower, on the train platform, on your, on your watch, whatever. None of the times are showing the same time. None of the clocks are showing the same time. Um, it's just a whole different common sense. So I learned how my perfectionism, my former perfectionism was stressing me out. And I learned how to be flexible, like in multiple ways. <laughs> so it brought out, it touched upon a deeper part of me that wasn't constructed as a reaction to the traumatic experiences in my life, but something that was more innate and more original. So then when it came time for me to birth, I feel like I had a little bit more of that deeper trust in myself. That wasn't something that was an outer shell and constructed. Um, and I could trust my body and I could trust my breath and I could trust where my mind was focused and these things, um, except my first birth, I wasn't so great. I mean, by then I was already practicing Ashtanga yoga heavily for seven years. So my body was super fit. I was eating like raw organic for two years before my first pregnancy. Um, so I was in terrific shape, but I was also still quite hard on myself. And physically also my pelvic floor was super strong. I was like this really, um, I had lost the fragility of my early twenties that I, you know, with the depression and the insomnia and stuff. And I had come into physical health, but I hadn't really holistically balanced that yet. So I was quite, you might say that I had some um, masculine imbalances, mm -hmm. like even in my physical kind of buildup. Yeah. So yeah, I would say that was something that contributed to a little bit of the challenge of my first birth. Okay. Well, let's talk. Let's, that's a great place to kick it off because the word balance comes up over and over again. And, you know, as a birth worker and, and some view um, birth workers as like experts in the field only because we have quantity of witnessing these these passages and amazing experiences of birth. And they'll, anyone, my, my doula clients, friends, just people on social media reaching out and they all, you know, everyone wants to know what's, what's the thing? What do you, you know, what do we do? Like, how do, how do I have an, an unmedicated birth, you know? And, um, and that's like a really loaded question, right? Like I, there's like 17,000 ways to achieve <laughs> your goals. Um, but I, I try to lead everyone to yoga. I'm like, yoga is this all-encompassing balance, if you allow it to be, of nutrition, healing, breath work, relaxation of the pelvic floor when needed through breath work, tightening of the pelvic floor when needed. Yes. <laughs> um, healing the postpartum body, tools for parenting with keeping your system calm when you're triggered. Um, so I tell everyone, if, if, you ha if you hold me to just one thing, I'm going to always say yoga because yoga is the 17,000 
journeys in one for me. Um, And so I'm so grateful that we're having this conversation today um, about so many of my passions with meditation, breath work, yoga. So you were, it was your first marriage. You were young, but you were deep into this journey, but you just mentioned you were out of balance. Yes. So share with me about that pregnancy and, and because the pregnancy typically informs the birth. Hmm. Well, so Ashtanga yoga is a very, um, yang practice, right? In terms of yin and yang, it's very, um, you do it early in the morning, you do it with the sun. It's a lot of movement. It's a lot of breathing. It's very physical and athletic. And then after that, you learn to meditate. Um, and you need, you need a good long shavasana after that, right? Um, I was not into a slow yin type of practice of loosening up and relaxing. And I was just go, go, go. And it's certainly what helped me to transform my health so rapidly in the initial years. But when I look back upon it, see, my first teacher was male. And then my Indian teacher was male. And then so was his um so was his grandson, who who was the uh, next teacher in the school, and I had all of these male teachers in the practice of yoga. So I didn't know what I was missing for the first eight years, and when it came time for my first pregnancy, well, it's changed from my raw food diet to eating cooked foods because I wanted to eat potatoes and rice and you definitely have to cook those things. So I was quite um, moving along organically with these needs of my body, but I was still very, very active. Um, I carried the baby very high because I think my pelvic floor was just like super strong. Um, And I still had a sense of, I, you know, I wanted it to be a natural birth. And I had this idea that, you know, birth would be, could be great. But slash, and I want to add in there that when I was a teenager, my mom, who glowed like a goddess in motherhood, you know, having these four babies between the age of 20 and 30. Um, and my mom was so beautiful. She's um, like one of the earliest half Japanese, half American models here in the late 60s. But um, she, when I became a teenager and after I got my first period and stuff, and she would say to me, well, now your body is preparing for birth and you're going to be ready to have babies one day. Congratulations, May. One day when you get your contractions and you think it really, 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 really hurts, wait for it to hurt a hundred times more before you go to the hospital. And so, and I, it really left an impression on me that birthing was supposed to be like freaking painful. So what, 10, 12 years down the line, I had this beautiful, healthy pregnancy, but I don't think subconsciously I ever let go of the idea that birthing was supposed to be ultimately painful. Just like everyone sees in like all those episodes of ER and people being rushed down hospital gurneys, like birthing is more painful than dying, you know, like screaming their heads off kind of an image. Were you preparing for something that you had to 
you had to survive or you had to get through like like when you look back at your first birth like with the the pain model right the culture of it being pain like do you think you are seeing it I say this because so many of my doula clients so many of you guys listening right now you're thinking this is just something I have to get through in order to be a mom exactly you know, versus this is something I get to do in order to be a mom. Yes. Or a parent. Yeah. And that's a huge mindset shift. And I want to say that because I think for many women and your listeners are um, in so many ways on top of the game because they're very much informing themselves and they're um, exposing themselves to all different stories and information. But me in my 20s, I mean, I, I read the books and I heard about stories, but I wasn't, I think I feel like it was much more subconscious. I wasn't yet fully conscious of the fact that it's possible to have a beautiful, easy, flowy, glowy birth in your own home. I just, and if I heard stories like that, which I did, a couple of them, I didn't, I felt like they were a little bit like a fairy tale, like it didn't have anything to do with me, is how I felt. Mm -hmm. Now, had I had the awareness to dive into, well, wait, why doesn't it feel like me? Why can't I associate with these beautiful birth stories? Then I might have had a different angle, but for my first birth, I didn't quite get into that. I just thought, mm, okay, those are the stories. And then the, here's reality. That's kind of how I walked into it. Yeah. And it's difficult because not everyone has that curiosity to find the answer, right? Um, some people haven't worked through any of their ancestral trauma, their womb trauma that they were raised in, their childhood, the experiences, and they really do look forward to numbing the experience of childbirth and just moving to, to the parenthood journey and really want the pregnancy and or the um the birth itself to just sort of go away, you know, to just like, oh, I wish we didn't have to do this thing. And then we have others listening today and others that are in my own doula practice that are quite curious and they really want to take a deep dive into understanding how they got to these, this, this misinformation or misconception of what birth is. May, I really want to give credit to two different um, authors that are coming to mind as we're speaking. And the first is Laura, and I believe her last name is Stavo. And she wrote this famous quote that says, there is a secret in our culture, and it is not that birth is painful. It is that women are strong. And I think that's exactly what we're talking about right now. And what's super interesting is we are talking about two different cultures. And I know that your mom, you are quarter American and your mom was half American. So there is that influence, right? But to see the similarities of different cultures around the world perpetuating this myth that birth is just painful and it's just hard and it's just arduous and that the story is not 
women are wildly capable and that we are brave and that we are strong. And um, another quote, I interviewed Britta Bushnell on the podcast, the author of Transformed by Birth, one of my favorite birth books I've ever read in one of my favorite episodes on this podcast. And she says, birth doesn't ask you to be fearless. It asks you to be brave. And so these concepts that women are strong and that we are brave and um, like you were talking about your the yang practice and that is more of that like um, masculine type energy or thinking but bringing in or balancing it with the yen with the feminine with the divine feminine energy and so I was hoping you would just kind of elaborate those concepts with this birth right so here you are in this pregnancy and your masculine and feminine are out of balance and you're fighting the culture from uh, or the message from your you know mother that is that's everything our message is from our moms (laughs) that's everything And so did you rebalance before birth or is that how you went into birth? I don't think I quite rebalanced. Um, There's a few things that come to mind. One is that early in my first pregnancy and at the time I was living in the southwestern region in Japan called Fukuoka and they issue a maternal pregnancy um, handbook kind of a thing where you keep a record of your um, regular checkups and how you're doing, how you're playing, all these things. And they issue it according to the municipality where you're, where you're due to birth the baby. And because I wasn't originally from Fukuoka, the first doctor said, well, you need to decide where you're gonna give birth because if you're gonna go back to Tokyo, um, you should get it issued there, this kind of a thing. And I mentioned to him, well, I was like, well, I'm doing some research and I'm looking into some birthing centers, but I'm also considering a possible home birth. And when I said that, my mid, whatever, 50s, 60s-ish white coat male doctor was like, oh, home birth. Do you know the statistics of you know, a home birth going bad, whatever. And from there, he broke into like this 10 minute lecture um, to educate me on how all of the ways that a home birth could go wrong and how ten, statistically speaking, 10% of home births going wrong happen in the final hour or something like that. And I felt really sensitive because I'm like this pregnant hormonal person and this man just is bombarding my psyche with this kind of stuff. But at the end of the 10 minutes, I said to him, well, thank you for the statistics. I appreciate your information. But how do you determine whether I'm in the 90% or the 10? Because he's just looking at statistics. The only thing that matters to me is which one do I land in? So after that, I was like, hmm, I felt like I wanted to, I wanted to decide. I wanted to take a hold of where I was birthing and whose hand it was that was going to touch this holy baby's head first. You know, and I was like, certainly not going to be you, dude. You know, so I walked out of there. Yeah. <laughs> I never went back. Never went back to that clinic. But I also got to thinking, well, how do women decide birthing places? Do you pick the hospital that's closest to your home? Like you pick a convenience store? Like, no, I wanted to pick whose hand would feel warmest and who would be most present. So I picked this 
um, 72 year old veteran midwife. And she, was, she wasn't doing home births anymore. She was um, working out of her tiny birthing center. So I decided to birth with her and she was great. She was very, um, very centered and kind of like old school. They used to call them sambasan in Japan. Like um, they don't really have a doula system here, but she's, I would say she's kind of like, she's a trained midwife, but she has a feel of this very maternal kind of um, impact. Um, but she also, the, since the first time she examined me, she's like, hmm, I never quite seen anyone like quite as athletic as you. Cause I think I was really like, built differently. She recommended that I give birth to the baby with my heart wide open, which was like some kind of a lofty idea for me. I didn't quite have it spelled out to me that I needed to freaking relax my pelvic floor. You know, like, I don't think I had that kind of a training. So when it came time for the birth, I still had this strong, like overly strong, masculine, um, decisive, great, but I was also maybe a little too tense as I walked into the final hour of birth. The baby was still born vaginally and naturally, no medication, and everything was great in that sense, except it was so painful, Heidi. Oh my God, I was like, literally, um, that the final hour, I was in the birthing chair, my legs like literally in stirrups, and right as the baby was in transition, like as the baby's head was descending into the birth canal, which they say is like supposed to be the most painful part, right? I literally screamed my head off and I said, Yamete! like really loudly in Japanese, which means stop. Like I literally <laughs> wanted to just grab the remote control of my life press pause, rewind back to the part before I got pregnant at all. Let's pretend this never happened. And then just live happily ever on after. Except I was like on the birthing chair with my legs and stirrups. But of course, you know, I, my psyche, my mind and my body was presenting so much resistance to the baby coming down and and I didn't know, I mean, obviously I, I, I had no way of knowing because I didn't know how to release that, how to relax that. I hadn't trained for that. I hadn't practiced that. Mm -hmm. So the instant after I said, stop, of course I totally ran out of energy. I completely surrendered. I gave up and I just like went limp. And that of course was when the baby came through and ta-da, like, then he was screaming at the top of his lungs going, ah, right. Yeah. So that was my first birth. I felt, I mean, the natural birth part was, was great and it was empowering in that sense, but I also felt torn apart, barged open and ripped apart. Mm -hmm. um, I have a question for you. In Japanese culture, is, is it acceptable like in that moment, could you have spoken up for yourself and said, I will not lay on my back with my legs and stirrups. I will stand up and use gravity and birth my baby so that I can be comfortable. Like, could you, because this is what a doula does, right? We advocate for, uh, for positions 
to help like you you were physically in a position like a like a body position that wasn't aligned with relaxing the pelvic floor, coming into alignment, and safe birthing. So everything that you're describing makes sense for both going into it out of alignment, but also, as you know, the poses in yoga along with the breath work are very important in synchronizing those two things. And like, so I guess what I'm saying is, as a woman in Japan, can you speak up for yourself like that? Generally speaking, I would say very, very, very few women do. In my case, I had already opted to not birth in a hospital and I had this midwife. Um, so with her, I probably could have, but after that birthing experience, um, maybe weeks after I was just, I was in pain and I needed to heal from that physically and also mentally and emotionally. And I just had this thought like, wait, it wasn't supposed to be like this. Like birthing for women can be a much more natural, organic thing. And it, like, I couldn't understand why God or the universe or nature or whatever you want to call it would do this to women. It wasn't quite supposed to be this ripping apart, barging open experience. And so then I was like, well, what could I have done differently? And I started to reflect on it. Um, but of course you also have this newborn and you're going through the whole like booby feeding period and everything and everything just gets chaotic. And I never knew if I would have another child because within the first year I was divorced with my first husband. Um, but uh, much many years later in my mid thirties, when I remarried and we decided that we wanted another baby and we were blessed with the next pregnancy, I was like, okay, this time I'm going to do things differently. Yeah. And I wow. want to note, I am speculating here. Maybe your marriage at the time of your birth was wonderful, but your connection to the people in the room surrounding you, the midwife, the obstetrician, the, if you have a, like um, um, a grandmother, an aunt, a mother, a sister, a best friend, a doula, your partner, your birth partner, all of that energetically is the welcome party for your baby, but also what you're, who you're drawing from right? So you better make sure that the people that are surrounding you in your birth room are aligned with you and that you're like, you're, you can draw energy from them and strength mm. from them. And that, um, I have seen birth experiences look different when deep, profound love is in that room, no matter what that looks like or who it's coming from. Um, be it the parent, the other parent of the child or a best friend or um, the intended parents. Um, there's so many ways to define that. But I, but I have a feeling that the love of your second husband played a, a giant role in that next birth. And so I just wanted to see, like, have you ever thought about the dynamics of your relationship and the energy that was in the room? there 
Yes, I love that. You, you just put it so perfectly and it's so true because it's so empowering to um, not just the woman who's giving birth, but to the baby and just to the energy of the whole room, like you say, because it's, it's a coming together. It's like a communion in the moment um, that allows for this new life to come through. Um, but the other thing I really want to say to my, to my old self and to maybe some of your listeners is that I didn't know. It's not that I wasn't able to do that for myself for my first birth because I didn't want to. It's that I didn't know. I didn't know any better. So when I look back and I say, oh, maybe I wasn't strong enough back then, or maybe I wasn't courageous enough back then, what I'm really saying is that I was not self-empowered back then. Because when my mom said, you know, wait for your contractions to hurt a hundred times more. And I believed her. I had given my power away. Right. When um, maybe even when my midwife said, oh, you know, you're built differently from other people. You know, you're um, maybe more athletic or whatever. And I thought, well, what is that supposed to mean? How can I train and practice myself? But I didn't ask her because I didn't know that I could, or I didn't know that there was another way. I thought that maybe she was supposed to suggest to me anything she could, but I didn't, I didn't, I wasn't empowered enough to ask her. And then even with my first husband, um, because he, when I look back on it, he was, he was very distant during my pregnancy. Like he didn't come to any of my checkups, um, except for the very first where I asked him to come with me. It was it was very um, disengaged that way, but I didn't doubt myself. Maybe because I didn't want to. I didn't want to come face to face with the fact that maybe um, he wasn't the man that I thought he was, or maybe um, there was another way. That is there another way that I can choose the birth, or because it in a sense. It, it feels like a lot of responsibility too to empower yourself and to begin to make these decisions. Sometimes I think we disempower ourselves because it's the easy way out and then it ends up not working out for us anyway, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's true. Yeah. So tell me about meeting your second husband. Yes. How'd so you my meet? second husband, go ahead. I just said, how'd you meet? We met through a mutual friend. Um, He was a former heavyweight MMA champion. So we used to joke about how I'm a hundred pound, like skinny yogi. And he's like this thick, a hundred kilograms, which is like 220 pound um, heavyweight athletic person. Um, But both he and I definitely had this, um, a common thread in his practice of Budo or the martial art of just presence of mind being in the moment, like live or die kind of training physically, mentally, and emotionally. And even through my practice of yoga and meditation, um, even though it's not live or die in his kind of way, I was very much attuned to the kind of lifestyle where you live each day like it could be your last, right? I wanna be that aware and I wanna be that mindful. So we came together 
we had this beautiful relationship and he adopted my first son. So that was kind of the first um, stage of our coming together as a family. And we decided that we wanted another. So this is, this is, um, I actually, having said all of that with my second pregnancy, I didn't immediately go to a home birth. I actually had this business that was running on me and then I had this son and I have this new husband. I considered all my risks and I actually initially selected a local clinic whose slogan it was to give natural birth in a safe environment. And I thought, so they would, they would um, encourage vaginal birth as much as possible, but in case something goes wrong, then they have all the medical facility available, right? And I thought that was the best thing for me. And my second husband, he was like, he, he was so involved with the pregnancy. He was so excited. He wanted to come with me to every single checkup, um, wanted to pay for everything and, you know, just made sure that I had very, very little stress. So one of these checkups, I actually remember it was, I was 27 weeks in, my husband came with me and, um, I wanted to go to India. I wanted to spend like a month, month and a half in India to just chillax for a while. And in order to do so, I had scooted one checkup forward and then scooted one backward so that I can extend my time in India. And the nurse at the clinic started kind of like getting in my hair about it. Um, she was kind of nitty gritty, like scrutinizing what could possibly be wrong with any little thing in your pregnancy. Um, and I just wasn't really vibing with it. I didn't like, I was like, well, I feel great. I have no medical reason or no other reason to, you know, not go on this trip and come back. And when I went on the trip and I came back, she was like, oh, your uh, weight is two pounds over the bell curve. And I was like, well, what risk could two pounds potentially present to me or to my baby? And she goes, well, if you collect too much fat on your vaginal wall, you might, it might make it more difficult for the baby to descend naturally. Like, you know, <laughs> oh my God, right? So I was like, what? You know, I'm this like- Like there's no science at all that says that. And I, I like, was just like, well, but, but look at me. You You're know, like, I've I'm, been on 42 I'm, covers. I'm so fit. <laughs> I'm just super fit. And I was like, I mean, I was offended. So after that checkup, um, my husband paid the bill and then we got on the elevator and I was just kind of looking down like, mm. and he was quick to say, hey, May, is this stressing you out? And I was all like, mm, a little, but don't worry about it. Like I was going to brush it aside. And he goes, no, I see you every day, super happy, you know, healthy. And you're, you're in great spirits every day, except when, on the days when we come to this clinic for the checkup and I see you. And I was like, you're right. You know, there's some part of this that I'm not really vibing with, but I also said, I know you've already made the down payment and I don't, I know they don't give refunds. So I just didn't want to cause trouble. And then he said, May, 
if this is stressing you out, I don't want any stress for you or for the baby. I don't care about the down payment. We have to change it if this isn't working for you. And I said, well, you know, I did all of the research and I selected this place. And if we don't give birth at this clinic, I think we're going to end up having the baby at home. And I was still sounding a little wobbly and unsure as I said it, and we're still in the elevator, <laughs> but he turned to me and he was like, sure, let's do this. You know, if that's, what's going to make you feel comfortable, let's do it at home. And I was all smiles and we knew that was just the right way to go. But 28 weeks is actually the cutoff line to change birthing places. There's like a regulation for, um, deciding like when you're going to give where you're going to give birth so I actually had to make the call like really quickly and I found another midwife and decided to um, train with her to prepare for the home birth wow what a beautiful birth partner and yeah, pregnancy right. well pregnancy partner at this point to yes. and how in tune the two of you were that the subtlest of difference where he what what happened was what you said earlier, you gave away your power to that nurse. Exactly. And he said to you, essentially, you, my beautiful wife, will take back your power. Because, yes, and I because I'm in love with a powerful woman, not someone who gives away their power to a nurse. Yeah. And that's the thing I think I want to say out loud is that when we're given away our power, we're doing it unknowingly because we're being quote unquote nice mm -hmm. or quote unquote like gentle or kind or whatever a nice girl or feminine person is supposed to be about. And quite frankly, it's just bullshit, right? Yeah. And it's, it's just, you know, I've learned to be able to call my own bull. Let's put it that way. But I needed some help along the way. And my husband had been a fabulous person to just be real about it, you know? Yeah. Oh, I love it because giving away your power is neither gentle nor nice to your soul. Exactly. And that's where we want to live from. And that's where we want to birth from. And so it's so what I guess what I'm trying to say is that every time you do give away your power and you're being nice or you're be, trying to fit into the culture, um, you're not living from the soul, you're living from the culture or you're living from the mind or you're living from an idea of right or wrong, which is much more of a superficial way of living than what's in your soul. Right. And the light living from and, and with the light that is inside each of us. So yeah. I'm so excited to hear this beautiful birth story. So can you share at home how you knew it was your birthing time? Like, yes. how did you feel? How were you sure? I'm just, tell me your birth story. Yeah, so oh, oh, I have to get into it. So once we decided to switch to a home birth, um, then I got really serious about, um, well, what's going to help me relax? What's going to help me feel comfortable and safe? What's going to help me open and soften for birth as opposed to the first time eight years prior when I had to be barged open, right? I was like, no, I want to surrender into this. I want to open into this. And so I got to listening to all sorts of podcasts um, birth 
guided meditations and documentaries and just geeking out on everything like safe birthing, um, pain-free birthing, that kind of a thing. But I learned quickly that if I'm researching um, human birth experiences, like if I'm watching some like YouTube video or documentaries, okay, maybe a little bit less of a risk, but there's usually somewhat of a risk that comes with watching that because I don't know until the very end how that ended, you know? So I was like, oh, I don't know if I want to risk that in my second trimester and my third trimester. So then I got this brilliant idea of watching wild animals give birth on YouTube. So I got to like observing the zebra, the gazelle, the hippopotamus, the giraffe, like the buffalo, cat, cow, dog, horse, you name it, I've seen it. <laughs> I just, I was like, it's not going to be enough to not believe what my mom said. I need to repaint the landscape of how I feel and how I think about birth. And I stopped using words like contractions because contractions contract. And I decided that I need to, every time the wave of pressure comes, I need to release. So I started calling them like waves of pressure, which I learned from some podcast, I think, because I knew from my yoga and meditation practice that with pressure, pressure always rises, but always, always subsides. Mm -hmm. It doesn't stay. So if I could recognize it as pressure, then it's a lot less pain because I know that it's going to subside and it will subside easier if I release it and get out of its way, as opposed to presenting resistance to it, either mentally, physically, or emotionally. And I just practiced it every freaking night, like an athlete preparing for the Olympics, like earphones, you know, close my eyes, guided visualizations, like every time the pressure rises, the more greater the capacity for me to release and relax. And I just retrained my brain um, to the night. It was October 31st, it was Halloween and people were in their costumes and stuff except my baby bump was no costume. And I was like, you know, um, as the contraction started, I said to my husband, I was like, hey, um, let's go for a walk. We just, it was gonna be a sweet night together. It was kind of funny because we were walking out in our neighborhood in Tokyo and all of these people were in their costumes, you know, but I was like the real deal. And every now and again, I would stop and just kind of like breathe deeply through the contractions. And we took a short walk, went home and I called the midwife to come over. She, she drove over to our house. She examined me and then she said, oh, um, you still look very tense and closed. It doesn't look like it's happening today. Shall I go home and, and we can see how you feel in the next few days or whatever. But I just had a different knowing. I thought, I just really felt like the baby was going to come. And I said, I said, um, okay, well, that's okay. But if you don't mind, I really feel like the baby is coming tonight. So would you mind just spending a few hours in our living room? Um, and let's see how I feel in the next couple hours. So I had her, she was actually in one of our rooms and she was just taking a little snooze. And my husband at the time was training for this big match that was coming up like later on that month. 
So I let, and he was just really tired from training. So I let him get some sleep. I said, honey, you can get some sleep. I got this for the next few hours. And I was just on the gym ball at home by myself and just kind of moving with this baby and just grooving with the feels and the pressure. And a couple hours in, my midwife, she must have sensed the heightening pressure from the next room. She sped over my way and recognized that, oh, indeed, this birth is progressing. And now she's softening and opening up real fast, mm-hmm. right? Um, and she would just kind of hold my hand and stroke my back, but just really not intervene. And I want to give her all that credit because as a midwife or as a doula, I'm sure you guys have had all sorts of medical training and, you know, preparations for birth, but I still feel like the best thing, the thing that she was best at was presence. I felt like we were meditating together. Like she was so present with me when she was holding my hand, present in a way where she wasn't getting in my way. She was there, but not intervening, not with her mind or her opinion, or she was just there. And she just let me be so focused with my experience with the baby. So I had another couple hours of that. And then finally at like 4, 4.30 a.m., I was like, okay, I think I'm ready for to wake up my husband. So I woke him up and we had practiced in advance how he would sit on the floor on the mattress against the wall. I mean, this man is like 220 pounds, right? Like he's just thick. And so he would sit on the floor with his legs kind of open and allow me to sit on his thighs and lean back into his lean into his back uh, so that his legs would kind of work like a toilet seat. You know, I would have this opening underneath my pelvis and it was so comfortable. I was just hanging out there and that was how my labor progressed. And finally, um, uh, my, my midwife, she examined me and she said, I just have a couple more centimeters to go. And I wanted to move. So I had my husband prepare a warm tub for me and which I had told him in advance that I might like to do that. And I had also told my midwife in advance that if I can, I would really like to take the baby up with my own hand if I have a chance. So as I moved into the bathtub for the final, maybe about 40 minutes of the labor, I was just, um, very, it was, it was, I can't describe it other than to say that it was like a a communion of souls in deep meditation. I was using words mentally like open and release and murmuring my favorite Indian mantras to help me to relax into the moment. And every time the wave of pressure would get stronger and stronger, my capacity to release and to allow would become greater and greater. And then I heard the birds chirping, like, oh, the day is breaking. And then I thought, oh, Isa, my first son is going to wake up any moment because it was like a Wednesday morning on a school morning. Sure enough, six something, 620 or something, he woke up from his bedroom and he went into the living room, but no one's there, dining room, like no one's there. And finally, he sees that everyone is in the bathroom 
like in the tub. And so he goes, he, he trots on over. He's eight years old. Uh, no, no, no. He's, yeah, he's eight years old at the time. He trots on into uh, the bathroom and he goes, mom, what are you doing, mom? Are you okay? And I was like, uh, yeah, I'm kind of busy here, you know? And my husband's in the room with me and so is the midwife. And then I said, well, um, I'm giving birth to a baby, you know? <laughs> and he goes, um, I said, I said, honey, would you mind just waiting in the living room? Because I didn't, um, I knew that if he was in the bathroom with me, it would uh, distract a little bit of my focus. And I want, I needed my full focus. And also just in the off chance in case anything went wrong, I didn't want to traumatize or have any risk of trauma for him. So I said to him, hey, Isa, can you please just wait over in the living room? Um, I got this. I said, mama, gambatere kara. I said, I'm, I'm in the middle of something, but I got this. Please wait over there um, and I'll, we'll be done in a second or something. And he trots on back down the hall. And then he remembers something and he hollers back. He goes, wait, but mom, do I have to go to school today? And then I holler back, no, honey. He goes, why? And I said, because your brother's going to be born today. And that was the last sweet conversation that I had with him. Soon after that, with a pop and a gush, the water broke and I, my labor was progressing. And then as I was, I felt really good to be in the water. I felt like it was just very freeing, this free movement. And again, though, with my second birth, I didn't want to be forward. I wanted to lean back. So I lean back and then my midwife said to me, oh, he's crowning. You need to, you need to uh, reach with your hand down. So I had one hand behind me, but I took, I took my left hand and I put it between my legs and he just had this gorgeous virgin, fluffy marshmallow hair, just gently immersed and swaying in the water, which I felt with my fingertips, my own hand. And when I felt that, I felt so encouraged, like, oh yes, he's gonna be here, the end is near. And then his head, his head was born. I wanted to shift position again, so I asked the midwife to please then take his head so that I can like lean back again. And then his shoulder and the rest of his body was born. My husband told me later that at first he thought that the midwife fumbled for a second but in fact he had his uh, umbilical cord around his neck so while still underwater she had um, swirled him mm -hmm. to undo the cord before she lifted him out of the water and placed him on my chest yes yes oh my gosh what a, what a beautiful just ecstatic story Yes. So connected. Yes. In balance, in pure alignment. I mean, yes. redemptive even. Yes. I mean, that is a circle of divine birthing that, oh, that needed to be completed before your husband transitioned out of this earthly world. Yes. 
What a yeah. gift. He, um, and then of course I had the baby and then I, um, gave the baby and my husband helped me out of the tub and, um, back into the bedroom where I then birthed the placenta. And, uh, yeah, we just spent those first few hours in our bedroom. Um, the baby was very healthy. I never needed to go to a medical facility, um, at any point of my birth. And my midwife would come daily for the first four days to check in on me and the baby. I just needed to be a little bit careful not to get too cold as I was um, exiting out of the water. Mm -hmm. um, but it was just such an ecstatic moment of um, love and joy in a palpable, tangible way. Like I remember the entire house smelled like love for days you know that's that's how it felt like oh, this has been such an incredible evening to spend with you it's morning for you time together um yes. I my whole body feels so good it's been oh. wonderful I've got tears in my eyes I'm just it's been wonderful to connect with you May um, I really like this. This is one of those conversations that you want to go on forever where I'm like, okay. And like, now let's just be friends and talk about life. But <laughs> what a gift you just gave the birth story audience. And, um, and you're the first person I've had the opportunity to interview in Japan. And I'm so grateful to just be sharing today um, what have you named the memoir? Uh, well, the working title is Kizuki, which is the Japanese word for something as small as a moment of noticing when something formerly you were unaware of comes into your awareness, or it can be as big as an epiphany or a realization. But once you see something, you can't unsee it. You know, once you realize something, you can't unrealize it. So that's kind of the underlying thread for my memoir. Oh, I love your working title. Everyone here at the Birth Story podcast that's listening is going to be cheering for you. Let's spread the story that you heard today. Share it. Please share this episode with a friend or a loved one so that May's husband's legacy can live on so that these stories are memorialized in all of our hearts and that when you enter into your birthing time, you can call upon the wisdom of May's journey and bring it forth into your own energetic birthing experience. Mm. Thank you for being here, May. Thank you so much, Heidi. I thoroughly enjoyed connecting with you. You too. And I will link all of the ways in which you can get a hold of May and follow May. I am very appreciative of you. And I hope that we will speak soon. Yes. Thank you so much, Heidi. Thank you for listening to Birth Story. My goal is you will walk away from each episode with a clear picture of how labor and delivery might go and that you will feel empowered by the end of your pregnancy to speak up, plan and prepare for the birth you want, no matter what that looks like.